Wagwan. What's happening, folks? It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Janet and James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent November 19th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Welcome and bienvenue to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. How are you, folks? Glad to be here with you. If you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast. This is a show where I bitch, whine, squawk, cabaliake, and kibitz about myself in order to relate to y'all self, y'all the dear listener, y'all the dear viewer. Shared experiences, kindred souls, BFFs forever. You know, you ever get that, you know, conundrum up on your wig, you know, it ever flip your wig when it's just like, yo, like, why do people just be acting the way they do? Bitching, whining, squawking, babbling, talking a fucking blue streak, you know? While y'all up in my ear, talking all that shit I ain't trying to hear. Get back, motherfucker. You don't know me like that, you know? Well, that's where I come in, you know? Just, uh, you know, thoughts on the human... <clears throat> oh, that wascoe wabbit. Uh, thoughts on the human experience. What makes us tick, you know? Uh... Performance, I am a performer, which I'm going to get to. And also current events, you know, the times of our times. So that's what we're rocking with here on JR the P. You know, I'm available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. And if you have questions, queries, or qualms, please hit me up jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. You got questions, you got queries, you got qualms, got a bone to pick? Hit me up. jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Yes. And if you're enjoying the show thus far, getting some laughs, some chuckles, some guffaws, some gags, you know, you know, snickers, you know, if you're digging the show, please do. Help my black ass out for crying out loud. Share me with a friend. Sharing's caring, folks. You know, it truly is, you know. Alrighty then. Now that we got that out of the way, you know, a bit of a mouthful. If you are new to the show, I am an actor extraordinaire. Yes. Diploma in theater arts. Thespian to the bone, ladies and gentlemen, and damn proud of it. Yes. Uh, like any industry, like any career, pandemic 2020 has shaped my, uh, not shaped, but has affected uh, my industry, caused me to consider um, some of my shortcomings, and caused me to consider how I can expand, expand my dream moving forward. And in that process, it's very important, which is relatable across industry, is um, working with others. How to work with others. We're seeing this time of uncertainty, a lot of political uh, unrest 
in the United States um, and in a global sense due to this global pandemic. So working together, moving forward, teamwork makes the dream work. And that's very important across industry. And it's no different as an actor extraordinaire. You know, I recently got an email, an email from a past acting coach. Let me tell you about it. So people have different opinions on acting class. Some see it as a positive. Some see it as a negative. You know, the positive being, okay, you get to learn how to, you know, take direction. You know, you get, you get to take direction from the acting coach, the, um, the director. You know, you learn how to take direction. You learn how to work with your scene partner, interact with another actor. You get to um, work, work with text, you know, um, in a real time situation in a class, you know, you get a, you get a piece of text, whether it be a scene from a play, a scene from a movie, you get that opportunity to explore text. And you also get the opportunity to explore um, technique. Some of the most notable techniques being, you know, the Stanislavski method, the method acting, the hallmark of the method acting is emotional memory, building a character from the inside out or the outside in. And that is dependent upon uh, emotional memory, generally speaking, right? So what does that mean? Like uh, to build a character from the inside out is to have emotional memories that you conjure up from your own experiences that help you to have a, an emotional inner life. And you bring that emotion from the inside out. It shines through your character from the inside out. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a milky dew. Will all of Arabia's perfumes not sweeten this little hand? You know, all oh, that wascoe wabbit, uh, you know, emotion, character, bringing it from the inside and taking it outside or the outside in, you know, physicality, like the way a character moves, you know, they got a fucking limp, you know, they're disabled. I don't know. They're crippled. Uh, they're a martial artist. Maybe the character is a professional boxer. Maybe the character is elderly, maybe the character is full of piss and vinegar, you know, in the springtime of life, youth. All these physicalities, all these realities help you bring the character from the outside in. The outside physicality, the outside factors of the character inform your inner life, the inside emotional inner life of the character, you know? What does it feel like to perhaps be a character with a disability? You know, what is it like to walk through life with, you know, a tragic physical disability? You know, you, you've, you've lost use of your left arm in a tragic 
kayaking accident. You know, you didn't wear, you were wearing your life jacket, but it got stuck in the arm of the, the life jacket and then the kayak tipped over and then your left arm drowned. You know, you drowned your left arm somehow. Somehow you survived, but your, your left hand drowned. So now you've got like a disabled left hand. Like, how does that inform your character? What is that reality? conjure up in you in your emotional inner life so that's what i means bringing the character from the outside inside and these are all under the heading of method acting emotional inner life generally speaking you know you know i'm not exactly no stella adler you know but i'm just passing on some of the things that i've picked up over my time humping it out busting it out you know, breaking my back as an actor, thespian extraordinaire, you know? So, method acting. Bringing in the character from the inside out or the outside in. Yeah. Learning that technique, that's a benefit. Exploring that technique, that's a benefit of an acting class. And another uh, very poignant popular perspective on acting is the Meisner technique. Yeah, Sanford Meisner, you know. He was like this famed, renowned acting coach of the 20th century. One of them, you know. He was like this little Jewish guy from New York and he was like a chain smoker all his life, smoked cigarettes by the pack, you know, every day. And, you know, he, he got like a tracheotomy. So like he had like this hole, he had like a throat hole. They like burrowed a hole in his throat just so he can breathe. So like he used to talk through this disembodied wheeze, like a disembodied wheezing sound. He'd like hold a microphone up to his throat hole and he'd be like hollering at the class, you know, I want truth, goddammit, truth. What's your motivation? I'm bullshit. I don't believe you. As an actor, you got to feel it from your gut. You got to feel it from your soul. You got to live, breathe, and live theater. Art is ephemeral. Ah, the actor's work is never done. Ah. You know, Sanford Meisner. It's a real disembodied wheezing sound, this temperamental old Jewish cuckold, you know. Famed, renowned acting coach of the 20th century, one of them. You know, and the Meisner technique is a little bit of a variation, a uh, another approach to like uh, having an emotional inner life. You know, the emotional inner life of uh, method acting is based on the actor's own personal experiences, whereas with the Meisner technique, the Meisner technique. The imaginary if. Acting as if under imaginary circumstances. So from that perspective, the possibilities are a little bit more open. However you view this, right? Because if your emotional inner life is dependent upon your own experiences which you lend to the character through method acting. Well, Sanford Meisner, the imaginary if, is to act as if 
under if circumstances. So that is open to any imagination. You know, it, the possibilities are a little bit wider, so to speak, right? So yeah, it's like you get all sorts of um, real-time experience, you know, working with text, working with directors, working with um, scene partners, and also exploring various acting techniques. That is some of the benefit of taking an acting class. Yes. So to bring it back, um, I had taken an acting class in January of 2019. And I recently got an email from the acting coach of that class. It was this really disingenuous, cheesy, phony, self-involved email. Hi, Jonathan. Um, It's so-and-so from the acting class. Just checking in with you to see how you're doing, you know, during pandemic. I know times are tough and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, and by the way, I'm guessing this is what the email said because I didn't read it. But um, basically, it was an email more or less to try to solicit me another acting class. And why this is important across industry whatever you're dealing with, is if you dip back into the lexicon of Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, episode number 60, the acting class, I speak in depth upon my experience in that class. The ups, the downs, you know. It was an experience. You know, I took it for what it was worth. Um, I had reached out to that acting class coach, I had reached out to that acting coach after the class with a follow-up email. Hi, it's Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me in your class, even though I had to pay for it. You know, nothing's free except uh, the everlasting grace of God. But um, I had followed up the acting class with an email Hi, it's Jonathan. Thank you very much for having me in your class. I am interested in perhaps attending at a later date. To which she didn't reply. And it really just spoke to her overall arrogance. And her just short-sighted lack of business sense, which is relatable to all people, you know, across industry. You know, here I am, the acting student, the potential customer, reaching out to her, saying I enjoyed her class, I would like to return, and she gives me the old brusheroo. You know, she gives me the old brusheroo, the cold shoulder. And if you if you dip back into the lexicon, Jonathan Ramtree on the podcast, episode number sixty, the acting class, I talk about how she was very controlling, egotistical. And that's how a lot of people are, unfortunately, in this world. You know, the bountiful beauty of life sometimes butts up against the cynicism, a world motivated by self-interest. You know, sometimes the joys of life have to face the cynicisms, you know? 
And that's how I saw the class, very cynically. You know, she was very controlling, motivated by self-interest. She tried to rule me with fear. Fear. Oh, well, you know, even though like I killed it, right? Like, I mean, come on, you're talking to Jonathan Ramtran of Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast. I killed it. And what killing it means on stage as an actor is you fill in the blanks. Whenever you see an actor, your favorite actor, and they are engaging on film, on stage, on vodcast, whenever you see your favorite performer act up a blue streak, just acting up a blue streak, acting up a storm, you know, and they're engaging, that is killing it, more or less. And however you get there is through your own technique, whatever it is that gets you there as an actor. And that is some of the value of perhaps taking an acting class. The pitfall being some of the things I'm talking about here. You come up against arrogance, condescension, control, you know, a little bit of a molesting of your talent. Sometimes acting teachers have ulterior motives. Maybe their motive is to keep you down in order to keep you coming, keep that money train rolling in, you know? That's like some of the criticism of like, let's say, the medical industry, you know? There's no money in a cure. No, we want you continuously battling cancer. We don't want to cure you of it. There's no money in the cure. Very similarly with an acting class, you know? There ain't no money, perhaps, in, um, you know, giving somebody the knowledge if they don't return for a follow-up. And that's what I mean. The condescension, the control, the, the ego, which I felt off of that uh, acting coach and, you know, bringing it into today, current, she sends me this cheesy, phony follow-up email. <laughs> it had nothing to do with me as a performer. It had nothing to do with her as a teacher checking in on a student, you know? It was all self-aggrandizing, self-serving, cynical, motivated by self-interest, you know? She's got to pay the rent. Duh. You know, she didn't treat me with any sense of value. She tried to control me, lord over me. She tried to discount the fact that I killed it on stage in her class. I mean, from my experience as an actor, you can only really know what killing is if you have bombed, you know? That's pretty much how it goes. You know what it is to kill because you've done it enough that you know what it is to bomb. You know what it is to shit the fucking bed as an actor. So conversely, if you've been at it, you know, you know what it is to kill. So that's what I did. I killed it in her class. I could just tell by the audience's reaction, the other students, you know, you can, you can tell. You can tell when somebody's looking at you with like, whoa, this person is somewhat impressive or, you know, game recognizes game. The way they look at you like, oh. Versus just like, you know, that cold, detached, like, 
I don't want to make any eye contact. I don't want anything to do with this person. That stunk. P.U. You know? Mm. You know what I mean? Sorry, folks. One moment. I dropped my hanky. Dropped my hanky, you know? Got to always make sure to wear a mask, even on a vodcast. You know? Don't want to spread COVID through the internet. That's the next phase of this fucking pandemic, you know? COVID goes digital. <gasps> anyway, um, so yeah. Killed it in her class. She tried to control me. Tried to discount my talent. You know, showed me no value. And, you know, recently she sends me this phony follow-up email. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Didn't read the email didn't read it straight to the fucking spam box but like just phony she's a phony she's phony baloney you know and that's relatable across industry in this time when we are being shown challenges the challenge to move forward post-pandemic and what that means in any industry And working together, how valuable and how much value that truly is. Instead of being so focused on my wants and my needs, I'm going to make a concerted effort to be more open and to be more cooperative. Because, you know, I ain't no saint. You know, I am a performer. There's times when I have had arrogance, ego in the past. Today, I think I have moved considerably further forward in my business sense as a performer. And um, that's relatable across industry. You know, don't be no phony baloney. Don't be sending these stupid emails that people just look at with disgust and contempt. Like, this person actually had the gall to send me an email? After our last interaction, have you ever had that where it's like you've been in some sort of some sort of business, career, interaction, some sort of interaction with a person and it's been it was like completely negative and then they turn around and send you like an email like a year later, a few months later, whatever and oh hi, how you doing? Uh, do you mind doing me a favor? It's like yo, are you like devoid? You know, are you like, this bitch is out to lunch. She actually thought I would return her email. (laughs) You know what I mean? And uh, whatever, you know, working with others. Respect for people, not because it gets you something, but it's because it is the good, decent thing to do. Do unto others as you will have done unto you. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor extraordinaire. Yes. Sip of water, folks. Folks, quick sip of water. Don't mind me, folks. Don't mind me, balls. Yes. I am also a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Yes. Um, similarly, I recently got an email from an association that I have lent 
my, I guess, virtual support to. I've never really shown up in person or been any real live. Well, I guess I've shown my virtual support for this association, but, you know, I really don't know how much further I can go with it because the foundation of it, I find a little bit untrue. So I don't want to name the association, but it is a an association for stand-up comedians in Canada, right? And what this association does is, you know, it's kind of jockeying, lobbying for the government of Canada to extend tax benefits to stand-up comedians. Stand-up comedians that travel abroad to do shows in, you know, the UK, the United States. So I guess work visas, you know, that is a tricky situation sometimes for the performer. And also um, bursaries, grants. For example, there are artistic grants available through the government. I'm not 100% sure how that works, but there are these bursaries, these grants that, you know, theater companies, dancers, artists, painters, sculptors, writers, these artistic bursaries that artists can apply for through the government. Well, as a stand-up comedian, I don't know why I keep doing this. I just, it's feeling good to me today. Air quoting. But uh, gang signing, you know, but these bursaries, these artistic bursaries, as of yet, unless it's changed, they don't quite apply to stand-up comedians. We're not considered artists. <laughs> so, well, in the, in the guidelines of the bursary, I guess, we don't apply. So that's what this association is working towards, which, in a sense, is honorable, right? You know, um, I haven't been, I'm, I haven't got to that level yet. Um, I'll have to do a follow-up email, a follow-up vodcast, podcast, once I do, once I do get to that level. But I haven't been at that level yet where it's like, I'm trying to get work visas, um, bursaries, grants. And uh, so once I do, I can speak more on that. But there is merit in that. I can see that being an issue. I can see that being kind of tough. I know it is tricky to seek work abroad, especially in the United States. The whole visa situation can be tricky. Though I see a flip side. And the flip side being much to like much to what I spoke on in the um, acting portion of this vodcast, I spoke on like how we're in a world of cynicism motivated by self-interest a lot of the times, especially in business, when it comes down to the career, when it comes to that almighty buck, you know, people are pretty tight-fisted, you know, people stick to their own, and people are kind of looking out for number one, numero uno. 
So one of the biggest problems I've seen in the stand-up comedian community in Canada is number one, there's no real scene. And number two, cynicism. People are motivated by self-interest, a lack of cooperation, a lack of um, togetherness. That's what I see, you know? Number one, a lack of a real scene. And number two, a lack of real cooperation. Now, number one, a scene. What is a scene? Well, look at um, the United States. They have a rich history of show business. Stand-up comedy was pretty much born out of, like, you know, vaudeville, uh, some people even chart it back to like Mark Twain, the writer, you know, what, what, did, what did he write? Huckleberry Finn, Tom and Huck, Tom Sawyer, you know, Mark Twain. Apparently he used to go on these speaking tours and, um, you know, he would orate, tell stories, jokes, and it really drew the people in. It was a style of performance that hadn't really been seen like a solo artist standing there and just giving a comedic speech, you know? So it has legacy in like Mark Twain and vaudeville, you know, stand-up comedy coming out of the United States. Then it goes into like, you know, some of the rich history, Hollywood, New York, you know, the comedy store, Los Angeles, the comedy store, um, New York, the comedy cellar, you know, you know, all these clubs, all these scenes that have a rich history. Canada doesn't really have that. They have pockets of, you know, there's comedy clubs that are great and reputable. You know, it's great if you can work them. Nice work if you can get it. There's, you know, great, well-established comedy clubs, great established comedians but where's the scene? I'm a stand-up comedian going on 12 years, coming up on my 12th year of doing stand-up. I don't know any scene in Canada where there's a thriving audience. There is a fair rotation of comedians where you feel at home. You could just show up and be a part of it. Where um, there's industry presence. Where there is artistic nuance. You know? Where is that scene in Canada? Where is that scene? Thriving audience. Um, cooperation amongst the comedians. Industry attention. Uh, and nuance in artistic performance. Where is that scene? Right? It's very fragmented. And because we're always looking up to our big brother, the United States... You know, the, the Hollywood scene, the New York scene. We haven't established a Canadian scene where there is value from the, from the audience, value from the patrons, and value from the industry. It's all very fragmented. A lot of these comedy clubs, they thrive on American talent or international talent, bringing in different talent to headline and you know, make that bread and butter at the box office. And then here we are, the fucking 
stand-up comics who fucking pour our hearts out, our guts, our blood and guts, our blood, sweat, and tears, pouring it out on a fucking nightly basis, we're standing in the fucking bread line, you know? Joining these online associations and signing petitions to protest the government to more bursaries for stand-up comedians, more funding. Well, that's all well and good, but where's the audience? Where's the industry? Where's the love and recognition for our own scene? Where's the community? You know? Well, nice work if you can get it. But a lot of us are, you know, in the cold, you know? It's gonna be a long, long winter for me. Long, long winter. You know, it's fucking cold. It's cold. You know? So, in this time where we have an opportunity to reassess what we do, I think that's very important across industry, you know? Um, And that's what I see in comedy. I mean, obviously I'm a part of that community, whether I like it or not, and um, which I do, you know? And I'm a part of the same hypocrisy, you know? As I mentioned, a lack of cooperation, a lack of whatever. I mean, I don't know. What... What have I really done? Do I always exemplify the best tactics? I've been egotistical, arrogant, self-centered in the past. Moving forward, I think I've made a lot of progress and I generally treat others with, I always treat others with respect. Do unto others as you will have done unto yourself. I'm not, I'm not in the game of disrespect. But I'm a part of the same hypocrisy. And I don't think the answer is in crying to the government for more bursaries, more tax breaks, more, you know, this and that. For the, like, It's like it comes down to the general public. We have to value our own talent as performers, and we have to showcase it to a public and create interest, intrigue, community, interest a value in what we do as stand-up comedians in Canada. And um, I'm a part of the same hypocrisy. You know, I'm not shouting out or calling out any of my fellow comedians, comedians, you know. Some of them might lose their fucking bra over that one. Don't call me a comedian. Okay, whatever, Mr. Comedian, you know. To my fellow black comics out there, my fellow yellow comics out there, white, red, whatever the case may be, we need um, we need to be more cooperative, and we have to have more value and togetherness. You know, that's what sparks an interest in a scene. When, you know, the people and the industry and the vibe is like, hey, there's something going on here. Kind of like the whole comedy store in um, United States, L.A. or like, you know, New York comedy scene. We need to find that for ourselves. And, you know, when I got this email recently from this 
online association. I get it, you know, it's like there are roadblocks as a Canadian performer. And again, I haven't been to that level where I'm applying for work visas or bursaries or grants, but I do see a lack of cooperation, community, and um, value, just a a lack of value that we show each other as performers and as we kind of portray to the industry and to to the to to the general public we have to be the we have to be the voice of that value because the government isn't just going to hand it to us the government's not just going to be like okay here you go now you have a fan base the government's going to go get your fan base. No, we the comedians, we the community have to create that interest, that fan base. And I look forward to um, working with anybody who wants to work together. Hallelujah. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, stand-up comedian extraordinaire. <clears throat> yeah, so I hope that's been of value during this time. The, the idea of working together and creating value moving forward, whatever you do, post-pandemic. Yes. Quick water break. Sip of water, balls. Ah, it's hot. That's another thing about vodcasting, in case you all don't know. Well, it doesn't fucking help if you're wearing a lumberjack jacket and got lights in your face, but it gets hot. Oh, a little dabble, do you? <clears throat> All right, folks. So, what I want to speak out, what I want to speak about on this episode is philosophy and its relation to art. What is art? You ever thought that? Ever ponder that? Well, if you're new to the show. I've been reading from a very intriguing book, and we are finally at the end. Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. I'll post information on this book. You could pick it up on Amazon. I got mine for like, uh, you know, $24 Canadian. That's chicken scratch compared to other economies, right? So, Philosophy, The Basics by Nigel Warburton. Again, I'll post information on this book. You can get it. Um, very interesting. We've covered um, a variety of topics. Does God exist? Right versus wrong. Do animals have rights? Philosophy and science. Philosophy and the mind. So now we're at the conclusion of this book. It's been a very intriguing read. And the final chapter is art. Yes. So let's get right into it. Oh, whoopsie doodle. Sorry, folks. So let's get right into it. All right. So, philosophy, art. Art has meant different things to different cultures at different times. Well, duh. You know, ever since a fucking caveman scratched a 
You know, remember when like a chimpanzee, you know, the first man, the dawn of man, you know? Just scratching chicken scratch on a cave wall, you know, they, 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 they mushed up some shit and berries, some shit, some berries, and they mix it up and they take a branch and they sketch out a picture of like, you know, a deer, a buffalo, and, you know, they're shooting arrows, you know, and they, they make this little sketch on a, on a cave wall, you know? You know? So like, you know, since the dawn of man, art, art has meant different things to different cultures at different times. It has served ritualistic, religious, and entertainment purposes, as well as embodying the beliefs, fears, and desires most central to the culture in which it is produced. Yet now we have seemed to reach a stage when anything whatsoever can be a work of art. If this is so, what is it that makes one object or piece of writing or music rather than another worthy of being called art? Yes. What is art? What classifies art? You know, if it's good for the goose, is it good for the gander? So can art be defined? There is an immense variety among works of art. You know, you got your theatrical plays, films, symphonies, paintings, sketches, comic books, music, you know, sculptures, woodworking, politics, some people call politics, political art, the art of public speaking. How do you define the bloody thing? This has led some philosophers to argue that art cannot be defined at all. There is too much variety among these works for a definition which applies to them all to be satisfactory. One theory to back this up is the family resemblance view. You ever notice that? Sometimes a family kind of looks similar, you know? You find the daughter really attractive. Wow, take a look at that. Then you see her brother. Oh my God, he's even hotter. <clears throat> family resemblance view. There may be overlapping resemblances between different members of a family without there being any one observable feature which they all share. Yeah, sometimes two siblings look similar, yet the third sibling looks different. Did the milkman sneak in? Or is there just like a unobservable trait amongst family members? There's not one observable thorough line of family recognition, right? Despite the obvious similarities between some works of art, there may be no observable features which they all share, no one common denominator. If this is so, it is a mistake to look for any general definition of art. The best that we can hope for is a definition of an art form, you know? such as the novel, fiction film, symphony, oil paintings, etc. Yeah, that's very interesting, right? So similarly, like the, the family resemblance view, art, you know? Music is somewhat similar to 
For example, stand-up comedy. There is a rhythm, there's a deliverance, there's timing. You have to have an ear for different pitches, inflections, tones, you know, suspense, you know, the come down, a flow. So yeah, there is a similar there is a similarity between music and comedy. And those are both art forms. But does that similarity extend to woodworking? Similarly with the family resemblance view, like I mentioned, two siblings could look similar, or did the milkman sneak in because, you know, little brother looks completely different. There's no one observable trait that all art shares. So how do you categorize it? Well, we're going to attempt to. So one way of proving, proving this view false would be to produce a satisfactory definition of art. So here are a few theories. Like I said, it's a little hot. Okay, a little dabble, do you? All right. So the first, the significant form theory. Significant form is a certain relation between parts, the distinctive features of a work of art structure rather than of its subject matter. This, these formed parts produce an aesthetic emotion in the spectator, listener, reader, etc. This emotion is different from the emotions of everyday life. It is distinctive in having nothing to do with practical concerns. Yes. So there is like a uh, significant form, significant form theory. One of the hallmarks being, well, two of the hallmarks being, um, number one, there is a significant form. Let's say um, you a significant form being like, for example, as a painter, the brush stroke. That is a significant form. That's the application of a significant form, the brush stroke. Or let's say as a musician, timing, musical theory. There's a significant form to it. Um, woodworking, being able to be skillful with your tools. That's a part of the significant form. So there is the application of a significant form which evokes an aesthetic emotion in the observer. One emotion that is separate from everyday life. That is the idea behind the significant form theory. Well, criticisms. Circularity. Significant form theory appears to be circular in that two of its key concepts are defined each in terms of the other. Sorry, folks. Does somebody call a wambulance? You hear that? Wow, wow. Like, follow, subscribe, share the whole kit and caboodle, folks. I'm going up. One of these days, I'm going to have my own uh, studio and... Um, that would be a blessing and just in the practicality of it, you know. It's, it's a blessing when you do things and 
the challenges of meeting your challenges, but it's also nice when you see progress that is not based on any ego or grandiose showboating, but like, it would be great to have my own technical studio someday, not just to say it, but to be free of those little inconveniences, you know? Background noise. The noise floor. Disruption. Yes, you know, this is a podcast for the people, by the people. But, you know, a little bit more of a controlled recording environment would be welcome. Anyways, back to the criticism of the significant form theory. Listen up. You know, I'm not doing this for my own health, you know. All right. So criticism of the significant form theory. Circularity. Significant form theory. (laughs) Guess who's back? Back again. Death is back. Tell a friend. Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Guess who's back? Do you hear this wambulance? Wah, wah. Somebody burnt some toast. Wah, wah. Some fucking drug addict pulled the alarm bell at the grocery store. Wah, wah. I guarantee you nothing's going on. Those are tax dollars being wasted, folks. Shout out to um, all these um, medical uh, professionals serving us during this pandemic, putting it on the line every day, serving their community. This podcast is dedicated to you. Thank you very much for your service. And if I ever have to call a wambulance in the future, I will be very grateful for the opportunity. Well, the opportunity to call a ambulance the uh the service i'd be grateful for the service that these individuals provide it's tough every day banging it out with the general public people overdosing people having real everyday life emergencies that's got to be a hectic job so thank you very much for your service all right so back to the significant form theory Criticisms. Circularity. Significant form theory appears to be circular in that two of its key concepts are defined each in terms of the other. Significant form is simply these formal properties of work which give rise to the aesthetic emotion. But the aesthetic emotion can only be understood as the emotion felt in the presence of significant form. Bit of a merry-go-round, right? It's like, Okay, well, what is significant theory? What is significant form theory? Well, it's the significant form that evokes aesthetic emotion in the observer. But what is aesthetic emotion? Well, it is the emotion evoked by the significant form. It's like a bit of a merry-go-round. It's hard to catch and it's hard to describe. You know, it's like, It's like that roundabout, you know? It's like, I need experience in order to work. But in order to work, I need experience. I need to work. 
but in order to work, I need experience. But how do I get experience if I don't work? You know, it's all my absolute headache. So the circularity of the significant form theory, that's one of the criticisms. Another one being irrefutability. If a person claims to have fully experienced a work of art, but hasn't experienced the aesthetic emotion, that person is mistaken. They either haven't fully experienced it, or they're not a sensitive critic. How to prove or disprove? Yes. So the significant form, you know, the application of significant form, which evokes an aesthetic emotion. Well, how do we know what that emotion is? And how do we refute it? How do we know if the job has really been done? It's like, how, how do you know? How can we know what emotion is evoked by the observer? How do we know? Like, it's almost like once, once the art form is out of the womb, once it has been birthed, does the artist even have control over it anymore? Like, yeah, you know, I, I, I produced this podcast, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast. It's, in, its intention is to be funny and informative and um, of value. That's my intention. That's what I'm trying to evoke. Laughter. Food for thought. You know? Discussion. That's what I'm trying to evoke. Well, how do I know? How do I know what it evokes? I don't know what it evokes in people. And how can they say what it evokes in them is truly my intent? You know? It's like it's like an it's like an asshole. Everybody's got one. It's like opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one. So it's like, how do you prove or disprove? what the aesthetic emotion truly is. Very interesting. Moving along. The idealist theory. The idealist theory. Art is non-physical. It is an idea or emotion in the artist's mind. It is expressed through an artist's work with a medium, paintings, writing, etc., but the artwork itself remains in the artist's mind. Also, it contrasts genuine works of art with mere entertainment art. Genuine art has no purpose. It is an end in itself. Entertainment art is a craft created with a purpose to entertain or serve some function, and therefore inferior to art proper. Criticisms. Strangeness. It's strange to consider artworks to be ideas in the mind rather than physical objects. You know, the example to give like going to an art gallery. All you're seeing are traces of the artist's actual creations. Right? So think about that. If the artwork is truly in the artist's mind, not in the product, then like, what are you viewing at an art gallery? It's like somebody paints a painting and the painting is like, is a representation of the artwork 
which is in the artist's mind. So then what, what the hell are you watching? <laughs> it's like watching a movie. You're not actually watching the movie. The real movie is in the director's mind. The real movie is in the actor's mind. The final product is not the actual product. The artwork lives in the artist's mind. A little wonky, you know? A little out to lunch. So that's one of the criticisms. It's a little strange. And number two, um, too narrow, you know? Does this mean that any works of art created with a specific purpose in mind cannot be works of art? Yeah. You know, they're saying one of the defining factors of art is that it is a means to an end in itself. Art proper is an end in itself. Like, there's no reason for the creation of a painting. It's only done for the reason of itself. Well, that's a bit of a contrast then, because like, what if you create something with a purpose in mind? You know, it evokes a lot of emotion. It's widely regarded as something beautiful to see, to witness. Is it then not considered art? Another of the examples they used is like, let's say like um, craftsmanship. Somebody creates custom furniture, wood carving. They carve up a beautiful table. They carve up a beautiful chair. It's beautiful. Fine detail, beautiful wood, finely sanded, glazed. (laughs) They glaze it. And, you know, it looks beautiful, yet, well, you know, you created the table so that you can sit down and eat a meal. So you created it for a purpose. So therefore, it's not art. The table has a function to sit at the table. The chair has a function to sit in the chair. It's not art. It serves a purpose. It's not a means to an end. It's not art. Boggles the mind a little bit, don't it? Too narrow. It's a very narrow description of art if it's like, it has to serve a purpose. Or no, it has to be void of any purpose. Well, a lot of works of art are created with a purpose. You know? That's the criticism there. Moving on. The institutional theory. The institutional theory. The theory states that there are two things that all art has in common. Number one, they're all artifacts. That is, they have all been worked on, they have all been worked on to some extent by human beings. They are all artifacts. And number two, they have all been given status as a work of art by some members or members of the art world, such as gallery owners, a publisher, a producer, a, con- a conductor, or an artist, you know, that has been given that status by the art world. So here's the criticism of the institutional theory. Doesn't distinguish good from bad art. There are no real evaluative process, you know, It is extremely open about what can be counted as art. Some see this as its greatest virtue, others as its most serious defect. Circular in nature. Yeah. So what criteria does the art world use? 
So that's the criticism. It's circular in nature. It's, um, it's, it's, it's extremely open to um, interpretation. And, you know, what criteria does the world use? That's the criticism of the institutional theory. You know, it's like, just because, just because a bunch of, um, you know, artsy-fartsy, mumbo-jumbo dummies at an art gallery want to claim that um, somebody pouring a can of beans on a uh, canvas is art. Oh, they opened up a can of noodle soup and they dumped it on an artistic canvas. That's art. It's like... Well, what is your process for evaluating that? It's pretty arbitrary, pretty broad. You know, what if I what if I literally took a shit on this podcast? What if I literally just stood up, dropped my drawers, squatted down, and fucking dumped a shit right on the fucking ground? Number one, that would make no sense. This is my home. Why would I shit on the floor of my own home? But um, number two, <laughs> number two, <laughs> coincidentally, number two, it... it it's pretty broad. I mean, you're really going out on a limb to call that art. But then again, who could refute it? These are pretty broad general terms. I call it art. <laughs> so, the institutional theory, it's open to interpretation. It's kind of baseless in a sense. You know, there ain't no real evaluative process. But yet again, some people see that as its greatest virtue. It's like, hey, beauty is in beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It is what you make of it. That's also very ex- inspiring. Very inspiring. You know, break free of the shackles of condescension, criticism, naysayers. Make your art. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Very interesting. So moving past those theories, those defining theories of art, then there's some conceptual ideas about art. What about art and evolution? Art arises from instincts, and its biological origins shed light on what is And why is it important for humans? Example, landscape paintings. Some people believed landscape paintings helped humans to visualize the importance of hospitable environments for humans. Also, creating works of art serve no immediate purpose, but those who create significant, but those who create signal their purpose, their prowess, to a mate. You know, for example, the peacock. I don't even know how a peacock sounds. Probably sounds like Lester Holt from NBC, you know? Hello, I'm Lester Holt. Tonight on Dateline. You know, because of like the NBC peacock. I'm just guessing that's how a peacock sounds. Hi, I'm a peacock. I'm Lester Holt. (laughs) God love Lester Holt. Um... He's the host of, you know, NBC Nightly News and uh, I believe uh, Dateline. I don't know why I'm smiling at that. I just find it to be very 
interesting investigative journalism. You're an artist in my mind, Lester Holt. <laughs> but anyway, um, that is like uh, some of the theory here. It's like, um, well, number one, uh, landscape, like uh, art was created to like inform human beings, you know, with like, you know, landscape paintings, going back to the caveman, <laughs> painting on a cave wall. It like, it tells a story of, the human experience and what a human should seek, preferable environments in which to live in. And number two, it's a sign of prowess, you know, vitality in a mating sense, you know, like the peacock. There ain't no reason why he's got these tail feathers, shaking his tail feather, walking around all peacocking. There ain't no reason for it, no rhyme or reason. But it signals, it signals to a mate his vitality, his prowess. You know, the female peacock, she's just standing there. She's flabbergasted. She's wowed. She's just like. You know, she's just in awe of this guy's feathers. Wow, look at those. You know. It signals vitality, right? Criticisms. Alternative explanations. You know, there are alternative explanations. There are many other reasons for art than evolution theory. For example, the paintings of hills, rolling landscapes, you know, these landscape paintings, they might be to express hospital hospitable living environments in some evolution, or it may be a reminder of our mother's bosom. You know, you see the curving, that curving landscape, you know, those rolling foothills. Ooh, it reminds you of your mother's bosom, breastfeeding, titty sucking, you know. Maybe we have a general liking for landscape Im imagery because the curves remind us of breastfeeding, you know, goes back to the crib, you know. But then again, you know, like for myself, example, my mo my mother, her breasts were very saggy. They used to sag down to her knees. So it's like they were more like a mudslide. You know, I would I would describe my mother's breasts more as like a lands a mudslide. You know, rather than a landscape, they were more like a mudslide. So every time I see a painting of a mudslide, it doesn't really evoke anything in me. Doesn't want me to get back on the nipple. You know, it didn't really invoke anything in me, so. It's kind of a strange discussion, but hey, that's art and evolution for you. Moving along here. Art criticism. What value does art critique and criticism serve? Art criticism. Here's one of the ideas. Anti-intentionalism. Anti-intentionalism. Criticism should delay. Criticism should deal only with evidence internal to the work contained within. The criticism should only be to the work and what is contained within. Personal statements about what the artist 
had in mind or external to the work are irrelevant to genuine, genuine criticism. Yeah. Any information about the work outside of the work itself is irrelevant to art criticism from the anti-intentionalism viewpoint. Criticism to that. Irony. Evidence, evidence external to work can be extremely useful in deciding the meaning. For example, as a comedian or as a writer. Satire. Irony. Having a reference point to the subject matter lends understanding to the expression, you know? Metaphor, juxtaposition, you know? Like, all that would be lost if it wasn't factored in, you know? For example, what's coming to mind here is like, you know, Saturday Night Live or like, you know, Love Em or Hate Em. It's a satirical show, you know? They, they lampoon, satirize pop culture, current events, political landscapes. You know, if we weren't to factor that in when viewing the show, how would any of it make any sense? Okay, it's a performance. They're up there and they're being comical and humorous. They're portraying characters. Okay. But who are these characters? What's the subject matter? What does it mean in the current times what is the backstory if we don't factor any of that in if it's external if all that is external to the actual performance therefore irrelevant well then the performance wouldn't really make any sense right let's say a protest song there's a lot of protest songs you know i'm thinking of like the folk songs of the of the 60s, you know, Richie Havens, Bob, Div Bob Dylan, you know. You make these protest songs. Okay, it's a good song, but I mean, it's not the greatest song. Melodically, vocally, instrument, instrumentalization, you know, it's not that great of a song. No, but it's a very meaningful song. It's a very important, meaningful song. Well, in terms of like actual song structure and, you know, musical theory and performance is kind of a shitty song. Well, no, it, it has all this political meaning and resonance. Well, if you take out the lyrics and you take away the political meaning of these songs, would they hold the same weight? And do they add value to the song in itself? And again, this is not a criticism. Um, I think Richie Havens, Bob Dylan are great. I'm just using this as an example. You know, they have these protest songs with, you know very poignant lyrics. Well, anything external to those lyrics aren't relevant to the criticism of the song from the anti-intentionalism theory. The intention of the lyrics are irrelevant. All that's relevant is what is in the song itself. You get the picture, right? So it really cuts a very narrow view when appreciating art. If, if everything is just limited to the actual final product.
if everything else is, if any background context is not to be factored in, it can really limit why you appreciate something, you know? Food for thought. Then we go into historical authenticity in performance. Does the interest does the interest slash value in reproducing authentic works of art, you know, symphonies, Greek, Shakespearean theater, does the interest and value in reproducing authentic works of art override the nuance and technologies of the modern day? You know, the interpretation, the equipment. Like, for example... You know, Mozart, Beethoven, you know, you know these bozos, right? Dum, 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 dum. Dum, 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 dum. You know? You know, these uh, historical geniuses in music, they create these symphonies, right? Well, what about the historical authenticity? Authenticity. The historical authenticity in performance. When these symphonies are being reproduced, are they to play on the equipment that was, you know, available to like Wolfgang van Beethoven and, you know, Helsing Mozart? Are you supposed to play on some broken down piano from 1491? Or why not bust out the, you know... Why not bust out the turntables, the scratch pad, the, you know, the keyboard? You know, why not, like, bring it into the 21st century a little bit? Where does the value lie in historical authenticity in performance? Very interesting. Very interesting. Because um, some people are hung up on the authenticity, you know? It might not make the most sense to perform a symphony with outdated technology, outdated instruments. It might not make sense. But then again, let's say you're doing like a battle reenactment of, hell, I don't know, you know, those Civil War reenactments and the Battle of Gettysburg or whatever. Part of what gives that such value is the costumes, the historical context, the authenticity. If they use the the actual uniforms, weapons, all of that, that's what lends value to those reproductions, right? It's really for like eggheads and morons, I guess, when it comes really down to it, but it is interesting for thought. Historical authenticity in performance. Moving along. Forgeries and artistic value. Now there are two types when it comes to um, forgeries and artistic value, I guess. The first being the perfect copy. You know, if you copy something perfectly. Um, what comes to mind is um, uh, there was like that documentary, a couple documentaries, um, these uh, these uh, forgers in the art world. There was the guy who like reproduced paintings by like Picasso, Monet, 
Van Gogh. He he'd reproduce these famous paintings and sell them at auction. And he was a trained artist himself and he would do it like he would do it like perfectly. His name was Wolfgang Beltraki. Check him out on the internet. Wolfgang Beltraki. He was like a trained artist himself and he would create these 100% perfect copies down to the paint used, the strokes, everything. And he would go and sell these forgeries at auction. Then there was that sommelier, Rudy Kernawan. Rudy Kernawan. He would like, he was like an apothecary of sorts. He would like mix up these uh, blends of famous wines and he would sell them. And it's like, people really tasted tasted what he made he would make these famous wines and people would like you know look 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 yeah mm, tastes perfect and it was such a perfect forgery that he got away with it for a while right so there's that type of forgery then there's the replica the replica is the style of the artist you know uh, a copy in the style Forgeries to be treated as works of art in their own right. To recreate a work of art does not prove... Yeah, so the replica. Forgeries to be treated as works of art in their own right. One thing comes to mind for me right now. I recently just bought a new bass guitar. A P bass. A precision bass. Now the first instruments like that, the P bass, was the Fender P bass. Now, everybody copies in the style of Fender. Not everybody, but a lot of guitar makers. They replicate the guitar in the style of Leo Fender, the Fender guitar, the Fender basses. It's in that style, but it's really a forgery. It's really his style, his creation. But then people replicate in that style, you know? And it really speaks to the value of, you know, a forgery. Is it a work of art in itself or is it a complete knockoff when people, you know, mimic the, the, the Fender style guitars, you know? Interesting stuff. So... To recreate a work of art does not prove the forger's own skill. Price, snobbery, relics, you know, price, snobbery, relics, those are really like the factors when it comes down to evaluating a forgery. So if these three reasons explain the preference for original works of art over forgeries, perhaps there is no significant artistic difference between the two. Here are some criticisms against this belief against the belief that um, works of art over forgeries. You know, if price and snobbery and relics... If, if price, snobbery, and the enjoyment of relics are what give value to an authentic work of art, here is some criticism against this belief. Perfect fakes... 
Yeah, perfect fakes. We can never be certain what is a fake. What is a perfect one? Like, you can never be certain, right? Like, how do you know that that is authentic? You know, you see an authentic work of art hanging in a gallery somewhere, and it's up for sale. How do you really know? You put so much value in the, the, the value of it being a relic, an original, the price. Oh, it's so expensive. It must mean something. And, um, you know, the snobbery that comes with, oh, I own an original uh, Archie comic from 1921. Oh, I, I own the original Archie comic. Uh, I'm an artistic person. You know, you put so much emphasis on the snobbery of the whole damn matter. Well, how do you really know? How do you really know that's not just a phony? It's a big phony. It's a forgery. It's a knockoff. You know, how do you really know? That's one of the criticisms against that value. Another criticism is works of art versus artists. We tend to value the creativity of the original artist over the skill of the imitator. Yeah. Right? That's what's of value, generally speaking. You know? Like, um, for example, with, you know, famous paintings. In my example, with this forger, Wolfgang Beltraki, he made a killing, he made a living selling these knockoff famous art pieces. And when it all came down to it, because he was a forgery, a phony, the value dropped because we value the original conception, the original ingenuity, that original spark of creativity in the artist to create a work of art so profound that it garners acclaim, interest, intrigue. And, you know, people stop and look. Wow, that is a beautiful painting. Well, that original creativity is what is of value. Not some forgery, knockoff, phony, bargain basement discount knockoff. It's the original creativity that is of value. And lastly, the moral argument, to go back to this Beltraki person. It is partly because of the deception involved. The equivalent of telling a lie. You fibber, you big fibber. You phony? The equivalent of telling a lie that forgeries are inferior to originals. Even a brilliant forgery involves deception. It may nevertheless be impressive as a work of art. Right? So, I guess people's own ethics come into that, right? But um, that's one of the criticisms against um, you know, the value of a forgery. You know, it's not just about being a, it's not just about being impressed with a high price. It's not just about the snobbery of, oh, I'm an art dealer. It's not just about enjoying a relic. It's part of what lowers the value of a forgery is the deception, the lie. It's just a negative it's a negative footing. It's a negative. It's a ne- it's a negative addition to the piece, like with this Wolfgang Beltraki person I'm talking about, 
check this out on the internet. There's like, you know, you can get it on YouTube. There's documentaries about this guy. I mean, imagine being duped, you know, like let's say you have an artist that you really respect and value and you have the money and you buy an original artwork only to find out that it's a phony. Sure, it might look exactly like the original, but the lie, the deception, it, it considerably lowers the value. Every time you look at it, you're just, you're, you're just aware. Oh, that's a forgery. That's a phony. That's a, that's a lie. That's a lie hanging on my wall. Yeah. So, there are a lot of different viewpoints when it comes to forgeries, replica, and the nature of artistic value. Yes. And that's the conclusion of um, the topic for today, philosophy and art. And that's the conclusion of um, the book. And again, I'll post information. Philosophy, the basics by Nigel Warburton. Very intriguing read. Um, Gives you the basics on some philosophical um, topics. Some foundational framework for philosophy and theory. And again, I'll post that information. It's definitely worth the read if you get the chance. Yes. And that will do it for this episode of JR the P, Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. Um, and, uh, you know, going forward, I think it's very important that, you know, don't be a phony. Don't be a forgery. Have some value in your personal life. You know, we make an artistry expression of our personal life, our personal dream. That's a representation of our of our inner beauty. You know, we, we create a work of art out of our life. You know, our lives are our work of art. How we treat our family, our friends, our community, how we choose to express ourselves, you know, that is a work of art in itself. And moving forward, post-pandemic, you know, I say that we express that in the most beautiful way possible. Hallelujah. It's your old Tucker buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent November 19th in the year of our Lord, 2020. Yep. You know, talking about acting classes. Talking about, you know, comedy communities. Philosophy and art. Very intriguing stuff. If you have any questions, queries, or qualms, please do hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Questions, queries, and qualms, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. And again, if you're enjoying this show, getting some laughs, chuckles, gags, guffaws, please help my black ass out. Share me with a friend. Till next time, folks. You live it, you love it, you realize it. Aight? Peace.
geese. <laughs>